0: Well, good morning. It's great seeing you guys here and online. Well, welcome to Northland. I bring you guys greetings from the, at least some of the church in Austria. Our leader and I were over there, and they are excited about what's going on at Northland. We were talking about the life of the gospel there, and they said to be sure and tell you greetings. Few of them want to visit here someday, so I might be calling you for, for a, a guest room for, uh, you know… They'll only be here six months to a year, so don't worry, everything will be good. Just kidding. But though I've missed you, I know you've had a great couple of weeks these, uh, these last two weeks with Pastor Sean and Pastor Vernon. And if you're new with us, we're in a, a series that is ongoing. We'll do a few Psalms and then we come back to it. It's a series that we're calling Every Beat, The Life Rhythms of the Psalms. The Psalms give us language for our journey in ways that a lot of times we can't articulate. and so. There are 150 psalms, so we're not doing them all at one time, but periodically we'll have three or four weeks at a time where we'll dive back into the psalms. And this psalm today, I thought about this week even on the plane coming back. Uh, and it was connected with something that happened in my journey long ago. I was doing some work on the plane, and I didn't want to fall asleep because it helped with jet lag, supposedly, and usually it does. So, after I did some some study and some work and reading, I— went to the movie menu, and there's a movie that grabbed me immediately. I I don't remember it ever being in theaters, but I'm sure it was. But it's called McEnroe versus Borg, or Borg versus McEnroe. I don't know which which it is, but I was drawn in right away. It's about the uh, epic— uh, match between John McEnroe and Bjorn Borg in the 1980 final of Wimbledon, in which it went five sets. There was a tiebreaker in the fourth set uh, that went 18-17. It was, it was historic in so many ways. And the reason I was drawn into that is when I was a kid, those two guys had been my heroes uh, because I wanted to play professional tennis, and that was my deal, that was my jam in high school. and. Uh, In the summer between my senior year and freshman year in college, I was playing tournaments and came back for two weeks before... Heading off for fall workouts, my dad said, I can get your job in our company, 5 to 1 shift, 5 a.m. to 1 afternoon, then you can have the rest of the time to work out. And it was moving these big bolts of fabric. They were about this big around, 20 feet uh, wide. We were transferring them from uh, aluminum cores to cardboard cores and getting the aluminum cores back in circulation, all that. But on the very first day, the very first full day that I was there, one of those fell off. We were using this crane to move them. One fell onto my chest and cracked my sternum. And uh, nothing you can do about that, there's no cast. And so, I did not tell my coach, I thought it'll heal two weeks and it'll heal. And so, I showed up for fall workout, couldn't cross over and uh, coach was not happy with me. And we did a thing where you delay for years, the equivalent kind of like a, a, a red shirt agreement. I was shattered. It had been my dream. I was a brand new believer. And so a question came up that is evoked in this psalm today. Did God remove his protection from me in that moment that that happened? My answer to that question has changed over time. Started changing even within a couple of years, because initially it was God. What's up with this? Why in the world did, did you this happen? Then all of a sudden, started realizing there are more things at stake than our physical comfort. Every one of us, unless Jesus comes back, every one of us is going to ultimately and eventually die. Is God removing His protection at that point? And in this psalm. There's a phrase about dwelling in the, in the shelter and in the shadow of the Almighty. Within a couple of years, I wrote, read a biography of a missionary. His name is Jim Elliott, and he, along with four of his friends, were martyred in 1956 by a tribe that was then known as the Alka Indians, or now known as the Waldani. And Elizabeth Elliott, Jim's Widow wrote his biography, and the title of it was Shadow of the Almighty, because it was one of his premier life scriptures. And there is no doubt in Elizabeth Elliot's journey, and no doubt from what Jim Elliot had written, that when he was martyred, he was outside of God's protection. He was still within God's protection, saying, how is that possible? Because protection goes far deeper than just our, our physical comfort. I also want to tell you hello for my son, Andrew. Some of you were here on Labor Day weekend when Andrew joined me up on the platform and helped with the sermon. You guys remember that? And uh, he, I, I, I conveyed to you that he was being deployed. He went to the, uh, the U.S. Air Force Academy as a captain and was being deployed to Afghanistan. And he is over there. And he and I are actually memorizing together this psalm. It's Psalm 91. In fact, he's watching uh, right now. It's a bunch of hours difference. But I want you to turn to Psalm 91 in your Bibles. If you don't have a text, I'd like for you to look in the Scriptures together. Psalm 91, verse 1. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely, He will save you from the foul or snare, from the deadly pestilence." Now, it's a powerful statement because a lot of people think they can out, outwit difficulty in their life. You know, pestilence, you can't outwit it, sometimes it comes. No matter how invincible we think we are, we are very vulnerable people. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you'll find refuge. So, there's a warmth, there's a softness to that. But then you have the other side of the coin, the, 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 the toughness, the hardness. So, there's first the tenderness, find, with, with, under His wings you'll find refuge, and here's the toughness. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. There's both that soft and hard engagement that God has with us. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. Covering four major aspects of evil in our lives. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. This is not a superstitious uh, mantra. This is not a, a text of superstition. This is a text about God's providence. And the lives of His people. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, and if you make the Most High your dwelling. Notice, if you say, so we've got responsibility in this. No harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. For He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift up their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And you will tread upon the lion and the cobra, and you will trample the great lion and the serpent." So, you're not going to be just surviving, but victorious in this. Uh, that was in their culture. What, is, what are the lions and the serpents in your life right now? What are they in mine? Because He loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue Him. I will protect Him, for He acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer Him, and I will be with Him in trouble. I will deliver Him and honor Him. With long life, I will satisfy Him and show Him my salvation." That word salvation, it is a big word. It's not this small little, hey, my salvation happened on such and such a date when I became a Christian. My salvation is past tense, present tense, and future tense. It's all-encompassing. It's unfolding. We're told in Philippians that we're working out our salvation every day. We're fully saved in Jesus, but we're working that out. That whole notion of salvation is, has to do not only with Jesus' redemption from my sin, but His restoration into the purpose that I'm made for. Uh, we have a new vision here at Northland, yes? Okay, you have the power right now to discourage me to no end, and we'll have to start us soon. We have a new vision at Northland now, yes? yes. Yeah. There we go. What is it? Engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. It's building on the legacy of 40 years here at Northland about uh, strengthening people towards maturity in Christ. And this is a, another rendition, another chapter of that in the journey of Northland. Well, this whole notion of being fully alive is rooted in Christ's agenda. We spent a lot of time in our vision series that we just had. Just because that vision series is done, the vision is not done. We'll keep journeying down this path and un, unpacking this vision. John chapter 10, verse 10. Jesus says the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. And I want you to think of Psalm 91 in that. What is the protection that's being referred to there? Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have to the full. So, there's this warfare. There's this tension. You and I are navigating through a fallen world. And what the gospel does, it does not take that opposition away from us. We are still being opposed. But something changes when we come into a relationship with Christ. We've we've been restored into the the original trajectory we were made for as human beings. Now, we're we're still in a fallen world, we're still in a fallen body, so it's not perfect yet, but we've we've shifted lanes. We've actually shifted directions. Instead of going this way and we are succumbing and under the the, the cadence of the enemy, we're now living and marching and walking to the cadence of, of our Savior. And He's not leading into a more impressive religiosity, He's leading us into a more full humanity, and it's in the midst of a fallen world. And this notion of being opposed regarding being fully alive is throughout the Scriptures. We're being opposed, as C.S. Lewis said when he read the New Testament for the first time as well. He says, you know what? We're in enemy-occupied territory. He's opposed to us. And the power of the protection goes far beyond just some bubble. First John, chapter 4, verse 4, John says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Get that. But the one who is in the world is still very active. Jesus in John 16, verse 33, says, in this world you will have trouble. I've told you guys about my research. It's a lifetime of research, looking at the Greek syntax, historical context. You know what that means? It means in this world you will have trouble. We're always tempted to think the gospel is is an exemption card. It's not. In fact, I'll have more trouble following Jesus because going this way, there's a lot of other folks with me going this way, I'm going against the flow. He says, Well, what's the hope of the gospel? Jesus says it take heart. And here's why, I've overcome the world. Greater is He who's in you than He who's in the world. That's, that's, That's what John is referring to. Now in the next, the very next chapter in John 17, Jesus prays this. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So you and I are left in the world, we're becoming Re- 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 fully restored to the glory of God. It's a lifelong journey. We're saved completely. We're unpacking that salvation. We're fully alive in terms of status. We're learning to experience that, but we do so in the midst of storms and difficulties and assault and opposition. And a lot of times we just relegate the gospel. Maybe this will exempt me. We try the thing. Maybe this will exempt me from difficulty gospel doesn't exempt you and me from difficulty, from fallenness. Andrew and I have talked a lot about that. The greatest danger, the thing, and I mentioned it to him again yesterday. We were able to talk via technology and a place, and I I won't go into any more detail about where he is or what he's doing, but he's exposed in a lot of ways. We talked about the greatest danger is his heart. And a phrase that I use with my sons, fight for your heart, fight with your heart, and he tells me that. The enemy is after deep discouragement in our journeys. And what Jesus says is, I'm not praying to take them out of the world, but they'd be protected from the evil one. How confident can I be that I will be protected, not from difficulty or inconvenience or a broken sternum, but from the evil one. And the answer to that is 100%. And what that 100% confidence does is gives me rest. A rest from which I do my life and I do this thing called fully alive in Jesus. Go back to verse 1 and 2 of the text. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So in the midst of opposition, when the enemy is after me, when evil is all about, you and I can know His protection. I mean, I've been, in, I've been in hospital rooms where there's deep grief. And I've been in hospital rooms where there's deep grief with believers, followers of Jesus, and evil is at bay. But as the Scriptures say, we grieve, but we just don't grieve as men and women who have no hope. I've also been in hospital rooms with folks that are not followers of Jesus, and not only is there deep grief, but evil is palpable, it's palpable. Because the power of Psalm 91 is not invoked. Now, those first two verses, there's several concepts in them that I want you to grasp. There, There are plenty, but I'm going to mention three you see the notion of rest, you see the notion of God's refuge, you see the notion of reliance or trust. The three of those comprise basically what I'm going to call a recipe for rest in your journey. Here's what it looked like. You got three components. Rest is the sum total. Let's put the equation up here. God's refuge plus my reliance, that's equal, that equals rest. Rest is not a a sitting back and putting my feet up and sipping my favorite beverage. Rest is a settledness in my soul from which I can deal with great confidence in my journey knowing that the evil one is held at bay. And as Paul wrote to Timothy, I am, confident that he be, that, I am confident that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. So but let's unpack that recipe a little bit. First, let's look at rest. Go back to the text. I want you to see several of the, the passages that are referring to it. Verse 1, again, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of his wings. We're going to come back to that, in the shadow of the Almighty. Verse 4. He'll cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you'll find refuge. The next phrase, His faithfulness comprises your shield and your rampart. And then He says, you'll not fear. Fear so often, fear that we're not in a place of refuge is something that causes us to be hesitant and in our journeys, and this whole notion that I can be, I can find rest. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? I don't know if you realize this, but it was a book before it was a movie. So, and there's the Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers Return of the King, Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, all three of my boys, they had to read the book before we watched the movie, and with my youngest, that was a challenge because I was having to read to him. But it was powerful. In the first uh, in the first uh, rendition of the, of the trilogy, The Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo, the main character, along with his three buddies, is being pursued. Uh, the enemy, the evil, the uh, deep darkness has discovered that Frodo has this one ring that rules them all. And, he sends his, this, the evil Dark Lord sends his nine ring race after little Frodo, and they're these awful beings, in the movie is just powerful the way it depicts them. And so, they get chased, and there's a fight, and the tip of the, one of the spears and, a, and a, a scuffle gets broken off in Frodo, and the poison starts seeping through him. And he's about to death, and he's rescued by one of the elves and rushed to the house of Elrond in a place called, bonus question, bonus question, Rivendell. Rivendell is a beautiful image of the rest of God that we can have in the midst, that we can be safe. Here's how, I don't know if I mentioned, but it was a book before it was a movie. Here's what Tolkien writes about Frodo, he woke up and he's now safe. He has a place of refuge. He's resting. Frodo was now safe in the last homely house east of the sea. That house was, as Bilbo had long ago reported, a perfect house. Whether you like food or sleep or storytelling or singing or just sitting and thinking best or a pleasant mixture of them all, merely to be there was a cure for weariness and fear and sadness. So is that rest something that we only have a little of the time and No. The rest we carry with us through all, even through the the, the frenzy of navigating a fallen world. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest. Not necessarily for your circumstances. There's, There's weariness that comes and and vocations and hard work and swimming against the stream, but we find rest for our souls. And it's that, that, that quiet center from which we do our lives. And it's the mark of somebody who knows the ret- refuge of God. So let's go a little bit further in this recipe. So rest is the result, but it's the result of the combination of two realities, God's refuge. In my reliance, let's look at God's refuge for a minute. Then the the imagery there is of being in a storm. Anybody here know what it's like to be in a terrible storm? Hello, we live in central Florida. (laughs) Ever been out and the thunder and lightning is going at it, and all of a sudden you find refuge. There have been times that I've been backpacking in, in the Rockies, and been caught in a storm and needing refuge. When I was a kid, my love for the outdoors started. I was a boy, a boy scout. I know that's hard for some of you to to picture, but that's me. And uh, I took a buddy of mine camping one time. We're in a camp, and he had never been camping, and so. This was not the time to do this, I didn't think about this until later, but I was experimenting with an older tent. I wasn't going with the nylon thing, my older brother is almost a decade older than me, and he, uh, I was using one of his tents that he had gotten, and he had gotten it from somebody. This thing was old. It was canvas. Now a canvas tent can shield you from the rain. There, you chemistry people can explain this better than me, but something about the canvas it will it will create an adhesive with those droplets of water, and everything's fine unless you touch the canvas, and it breaks the the seal, and it's terrible at that point. So. We go to sleep, we're right by a river, it starts raining, sprinkling, then raining, then just coming down in torrents, and then the thunder and the lightning, and I mean, the the tent is shaking, it's raining so hard. You can hear the water rushing outside. Now, we had done the Boy Scout thing and built the trench around the tent, so it wasn't running in the tent yet. My friend woke up freaked out. He said, oh my gosh, it's raining. I said, yeah. That's why we have a tent. And he said, is this thing going to keep the rain out? I said, yeah. And he turned on his flashlight, and he looked, and it looked wet, you know, but it, we were dry. It, he said, is this, does this really, is this going to hold the, the rain out? I said, yeah, as long as you don't touch the sides. He immediately said, what happens if you touch the sides? <laughs> I said, did you just take a stupid pill this morning or what? That and immediately it just starts drenching us, and the the sleeping bags, we get out, nobody, uh, we, we huddled under a tree, no refuge. Now years ago when I first started engaging with this text, basically what it does is it invites us to examine the refuge of God. Let me tell you something. Contrary to that canvas tent, God can withstand an examination. In fact, I get more confident, not less, examining that. Look at indications of His refuge in the text. Look at verse 2. He's referred to as our refuge and our fortress. Verse 3, He will save you. Verse 4, He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you'll find refuge. Uh, His faithfulness is there. Verse 11, for He will command His angels, as Michelle was talking about. Verse 14, I will rescue Him. I will protect Him. Verse 15, I will answer Him. I will be with Him in trouble. I will deliver Him and honor Him. Verse 16, with long life I will satisfy Him and show Him my salvation. I mean, there are so many things there. We could do an entire series on those. Let me point out one, though. It's, it's the anchor, it's the foundation of all of these. Go back to verse 4. He will cover you with His feathers, and I want you — you're about to get — I'm, I'm, I'm praying for an image to be implanted in your mind and your heart that will last the rest of your life. I know it's a tall order, but I think that's the power of the Word of God here. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. He'll cover you with His feathers, His wings provide refuge. The imagery there, does God have literal wing? No, this is metaphor, but referring to something that's powerful. You see it throughout Scripture. Let me give you several Psalms. You'll see this over and over. Psalm 17, verse 6, 7, and 8. In the midst of a storm, he says, I call on you, God, for you will answer me. Give ear to me and hear my prayer. Show the wonder of your great love, you who save by your right hand, those who take refuge in you from their foes. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in. And I want you to read this out loud everyone. Here we go. The shadow of your wings. That was, that was a different definition of all of you, so let's try it again. Let's do all of you. Here we go. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36 verse 7. How priceless is your unfailing love, both high and low among men. Find refuge in the what? Shadow of your wings. Psalm 57 verse 1. Have mercy on me, my God. Have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster is pass." Psalm 61, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, "'Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you, I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings.'" One more time, Psalm 63, verses 6 and 7. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. Where do you and I sing? In the shadow of His wings. That imagery is what the psalmist is, is coming back to over and over. This is a a Jewish prayer shawl, a tallit. I've been to Israel several times, had the privilege on a couple of those times to be with my friend, Ray Vanderlaan. You've seen these. Somebody by the way asked me, is that an an extra large? And it is, but uh, it's beside the point. It's a beautiful. Not just piece of fab, this beautiful in its tradition, rich history. Very intentionally made. You have these tassels called tzitzit, five knots for the five books of Moses, eight the, 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 the imagery, the the symbolism is, is is powerful throughout, and Jesus as a Jew would have used a tallit and worn it. And there are several versions. One are the out, out, outer that you would wear on the outside of your garment. There are others, and you've seen Orthodox Jews with the tzitzit coming out from under their their shirts. And this is the same principle. These these four corners are called uh, are called wings. Kanaf, it's Hebrew for wings. This prayer shawl is for us when we pray to have the imagery. Of being underneath His wings, under His tent. In fact, some would say in Matthew 6, when Jesus says, when you pray, go into your closet. Have that time alone with God. And understand you're underneath His wings. Now, these wings are not just defensive. They're offensive. In fact, it's deeply connected to Messiah and Israel. You see a passage, you see a reference in Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, but for you who revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. So again, when I gather to pray, I'm gathering, I gather with you and together we come underneath the tent of God, underneath His wings. But there's a distinct connection to Messiah, to His coming. In Zechariah, chapter 8, verse 23, this is what the Lord Almighty says, "...In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem, the kanaf, of his robe, and say, let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you." It's a reference to Messiah. His robe, it's not referring to a North Face jacket. It's re- referring to a, a tallit. Last week, Vernon talked about the woman touching Jesus. Remember this? She touched what? The hem, again, not of his north face jacket, but of his tallit. Mark 6, verse 56. And wherever Jesus went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces, and they begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak and all who touched Him were healed. How often do I, on a daily basis, call out to my shelter and renew my understanding that I'm doing all of my life under the shadow of the Almighty, under the shelter of His wings. Now, every week… I will give you a benediction, and others will as well, but some of you have even asked, and it's not me. I mean, it's, tons of people have done it over, the, over time, but the pastor or the priest will raise their hands. Where does that come from? That goes way back thousands of years, Aaron in Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22, then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. So why the lifting of the hands? It's not just a ceremonial thing. There's something powerful that's lost without the tallit. But when the, the priest, now again, for us as the priest of all believers, we bless one another. So it's not something magical about the pastorate or priest, but when I give you the benediction, the good word, benny good diction word, the blessing. And hold my hands up. It comes from an ancient tradition of the priest in his prayer shawl. Blessing. And what image do you get from that? Wings. Wings that say, you're covered. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of His countenance on you and give you shalom in the midst of the storm. In fact, Jesus, right before He ascended to the Father, His last act, in Luke chapter 24, verse 50, when He had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, He lifted up His hands and He blessed them. And while He was blessing them, He left them and was taken up into heaven. He was saying, I'm leaving you, but you're still under the shelter of My wings. His refuge is real. And His refuge, His wings are what you and I spend our lives saying, I'm doing life underneath the shelter of His wings. But there's another ingredient in the recipe for rest, and it's a critical one. It's not just God's refuge, but it's my reliance. His refuge is always there, but is my reliance there? It's His refuge plus my reliance that equals rest. And without my reliance, I'm not going to enter that rest and experience it on a daily basis. Do you guys remember the chair a couple of weeks ago? Please say yes, please say yes, please say yes. Biblical faith, I evaluate the credibility of the chair or the gospel. Uh, Is is it solid? Is it relevant to my need? But I have not exercised biblical belief until I've actually sat in that chair and relied on it. I read about a woman named Joyce and her husband, a woman named Peggy and her husband Jack who uh, own some property out in the country. They have a farm, a little chicken yard that's, that's right outside of the kitchen window, and she noticed one day a mother hen out with some really young chicks, and they were out pecking around in the chicken yard and getting corn, and she saw the shadow of a hawk come over in the, in the, in the, in the sunlight. And that mother hen, instead of running around trying to get her, her babies to her, she sat down and then spread her wings and started clucking, and those baby chicks ran to her and came underneath the shelter of her wings. So the refuge was there, but they needed to do something. Go back to the text and see what you and I need to do. Verse 1, whoever dwells. Verse 2, I will say of the Lord. It's it's actually saying that, sometimes saying it out loud, that He's my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust and upon whom I rely. Verse 9, if you say the Lord is my refuge, if you say it and you make the most high your dwelling, that's the same concept that's repeated again. And then verse 14, because He loves me, says the Lord, I'll rescue Him. I, I will protect Him for He acknowledges my name. So, during the benediction, I'll raise my hands, but there's something else. I've never, I've never told you guys why. The context of this, but what else do I ask you to do? I actually, it's only one thing I ask you to do. I said, for it's time for the benediction, what do I suggest you do? Some of you do it, some of you don't. Open palms. And it's to convey a willingness, some of you are, are doing it in your heart. You just never move on the outside because it's, it, it's your personality is fine. But that, that that bodily posture here's the background of why I do that. Luke chapter thirteen, verse thirty four, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you. Those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Am I willing to experience the refuge of God? Am I receptive? Am I open? Am I in the midst of even all my questions? My, what's up with this God? God, I want to be open to your refuge. Oh, not an exemption card to difficulty, but an assurance deep within that we're protected from the evil one. So how do I open my palms to him? How do I become more reliant upon him? There are so many aspects. Relying on Jesus. Uh, Those who acknowledge my name, That's a condition that's given in the text. The name of someone, biblically speaking, is who they are, what they do. It's more than just using the name in a magical way. What you and I are about to do is gather around this table, a table of communion that provides powerful symbols of Christ's work on the cross. Some of you are saying, I I don't deserve to be under God's refuge. Of course you don't nor do I. The only way we're allowed underneath here is because of this, what we commemorate and celebrate with this table. We're to relate with Him intimately. Those who love me, not just those who acknowledge my name. We're obeying Him. We, we, we speak that word of hope, but there's one Fundamental, just simple, very similar to the refuge, this whole notion of the shelter of His wings being the preeminent upon which everything else rests. In terms of the reliance, here's where everything kind of meets, it's in this word dwell. Comes up a couple of times in the text. In the first verse, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, those are the people that will rest. To dwell is a rich word. Jesus uses it in John 15. To dwell is to abide. It's a permanent place. It's a decision that I'm going to dwell with you. I'm going to do life in your presence. It's an intentional decision. And it's a decision that, even though my, the tent is, I, I feel like, man, I've been in storms where I'm, 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 I'm holding on to the framework. It, you know, it used to be tent poles, but it's not, it, I'm, I'm holding on to it, even though I'm, I'm, I'm thinking this, I don't know, I don't know, but I'm, I'm saying I'm not going to go. I've been tempted before, saying the storm's getting so bad, to run out of the tent, and so often we're thinking, I want to go elsewhere. Where do you dwell in the midst of a storm? What, what, what are you tempted to dwell? Where are you tempted to dwell? Where, to where Our pain is numbed, or do, we're distracted from our pain, and we try to, to anesthetize the pain. He says, make a decision to dwell with me. It will involve love and intimacy and submission and obedience. You will be opposed. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Choose to dwell with me. No matter what. I don't know if you've ever met somebody that later was martyred for their faith. I have, and it's... Powerful, gentleman and several years later read that he had been killed. Did God cease to protect him? No. The protection goes deeper than just our physical comfort. Brennan Manning, years ago, was given a letter that someone found on the desk of a pastor, a priest in Zimbabwe. The priest was martyred, and as they were cleaning up his study, they found this letter part of his journal. This priest had written this who knows how many days before he was killed. He said, I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. He'd been threatened, he'd been told to shut up about Jesus. And he says, I'm I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. There's a decision to say, I'm gonna dwell with you, God. Make my home with you. He keeps going. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, my future is secure, I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith. in his presence. Walk with patience and uplifted by prayer and I labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I want to flinch in the face of sacrifice. Hesitate in the presence of the enemy. Pander at the pool of population. or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till I'll know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me because my banner will be clear. That's a decision, that's someone who's made the decision to dwell. And to dwell on the basis of a work that Jesus did to say, come under my wings for protection and for healing. Yes, your sin is great, but my work for you covers that.